Master Cave in on Powered Trinity. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. If you'd like to share your story or find our socials, including Patreon, go to fostercarenation.com. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. Today we're here to talk with Heather. I messaged Heather somewhere on Facebook or maybe Instagram or something like that. You lose track of that stuff when you get old and you have a lot of kids and they take away your brain and you don't have memory left anymore. (laughs) But Heather reached out to me and or I reached out to her, one of the two, and we talked a little bit and I went, wow, you got a story to tell. You have quite the story to tell. And so I wanted to bring you on here today and let you tell your story to the world because, I mean, well, we'll get into all the details of it, but it's quite a story and you've really made something of yourself coming out of it. And that's one of the things that I've always wanted to make certain that we do with this. We're not here to, um, to, to just sell somebody's tragedy. As a matter of fact, you know, our real hope here is that we can peddle some hope out to the, to the masses. We can show people that there is a hope worth finding. And I think that's what your stories has to tell us today. How are you doing today, Heather? I'm doing good. How are you guys? Doing, doing well. awesome. Hopefully there's not too much noise in the background because I have a five-year-old who I think is throwing <laughs> a fit on the other side of that wall right there. So if it's too loud, guys, I'm sorry, but this is real life and we have a lot of real kids. <laughs> so hopefully the noise isn't, doesn't get too bad. If so, we'll have to go duct tape them to a wall or something. Oh, you know, duct tape's very useful for that. <laughs> <laughs> So, Heather, I know you, you said that you were in foster care. You came in at a very young age. How old were yes. you then? Um, so, I went into foster care um, at the age of one um, with my sister. She was two at the time or three. Um, but I was one. Um, and before I went into foster care, um, I was, first of all, let me backtrack. So, I was born to an alcoholic mother um, who has an addiction to alcohol um, and I say has because she still has it. Um, I was born with fetal alcohol syndrome. Alcohol exposure during pregnancy can be harmful to the brain of a developing baby and may result in fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Heather's going to tell us some of the story that she experienced because of that exact thing. Uh, for those that aren't aware of what that is, basically she drank heavily while pregnant with me um, and therefore um, I have a piece of my brain that's missing and that affects the memory portion. So fetal alcohol syndrome um, is a brain injury, not a mental illness. <laughs> um, I'm just going to clear that out of the air because a lot of people think that it's a mental illness and it's actually a brain injury. Uh, so my birth mom uh, was a very abu- is abusive, was abusive, uh, not only to me and my sister, but to my own biological um, father, um, who was a victim to her as well. And then at the age of one, uh, we went into foster care. While it is a common misconception that most kids enter foster care at a very young age, the average age of kids who enter foster care is eight years old. And only about 10% of them end up in a group home. Most of them end up living in a family situation. I don't recall really like what happened, I have paperwork and the gist of it was she, she had been drinking or 
she had hurt one of us. That was the gist of it. But from there, I was in foster care for uh, eight and a half years. Um, and in those eight and a half years, I had about 10 homes, roundabout, and each home except for the last one was very, very abusive. Physically abusive, sexually abusive, verbally abusive, uh, mentally abusive, all, all aspects. And in those eight and a half years, um, the judge was, I believe, in my opinion, way too lenient and gave her response way too many chances, but basically gave her ultimatums, like, you need to get your act together or this is what's going to happen. And she would get her act together for a certain amount of time and they'd let me go back then something would happen and then out again and the reason why we moved from home to home to home why there were so many homes is because my birth mom would literally get in the car drunk driving chasing us down the road breaking into these people's homes trying to get us she would either grab my sister and leave me behind or vice versa or she would just grab us both she would try to break into windows. She would just, it got, got to the point where a lot of the moms, foster moms would call and say, hey, this is, they have to go. This is becoming too much. You know, the mother is very volatile and we don't feel safe with her showing up at our door. So that's what she would do. She would literally like follow the caseworker to the house, like stalk her, like harass her. And very, very violent to the point where even police officers would have to climb in through a bedroom window to get us out. Those, those are just some of the, like, lesser of the evil events, but the more painful ones, uh, there were times where basically my birth mother would kidnap my sister and leave me in an abusive home, and I didn't know where my sister was for probably two and a half weeks. In that home, I was molested and raped, and that home, I was sadly in that home for an extra three months because DCF refused to take us out. Uh, DCF was called, the cops were called, the cops did not believe us, didn't believe my sister. DCF didn't really buy it and they did absolutely nothing. So that, that's the whole different, like my raise with DCF is gone with them on a different topic and a different level because of that. But eventually I was removed from that home because they called and just like, hey, you know, my wife is dying. We can't take her anymore. So a lot, that's the, the gist of the whole situation of why we were in so many homes was because my birth mom was abusive and she would grab us, kidnap us, hurt us. There was even another incident where we were in a car, there was a car behind us, my birth mom was behind that car, she was drunk, and she hit us, and I woke up to my sister through the windshield <laughs> and not moving. So these are very traumatic events that happened. Um, and then there was another incident when I was five years old on Christmas where there was money exchanged between my birth mom and her brother-in-law and I ended up being raped on that day. So there's a lot of um, events as to why I was permanently removed from my birth mom. Her rights were eventually taken. They, they ended up taking her rights away because she basically refused to help. Like she just chose her addiction over us. And that ended when I was probably about years old. Um, that was the last time I'd seen my dad um, for, for a short time, but that was the last time I was ever going to see my, my birth mom. And then from there, I when I was eight and a half, um, I was adopted by my aunt, my dad's sister. In most states, 
family is given preference over foster homes because they believe it is best to keep a child with a biological family member, which is often the case, but not always, as Heather's going to tell us. Um, who I wholeheartedly believe that her heart was in the right place and that her intention was good. Um, I, I never questioned that and I never questioned her part as far as like she wanted the best for us and she wanted us out of the situation and she wanted us to be able and I say us meaning my sister and I she wanted us to be able to still have contact with, with our birth dad um to be able to go see him um talk to him call him on the phone and, and have some kind of a relationship with him even though we were moving from Maine to Connecticut um Maine is where I was in foster care Connecticut is where I ended up living for 21 years so even though there was this big distance between us, my aunt really wanted to keep us in the family so we could have that relationship with my, with my father. And while that was honorable to an extent, and while that she may have meant well by that, and I believe her heart was in the right place, she actually was the one that ended up causing more damage. Um, she ended up being physically abusive, spiritually abusive to me. Um, I ended up being raised in a cult for 21 years. In the beginning, it wasn't like that, but it got worse in my teen years where I was molested by one of the pastors from the ages of 13 to 19. And my aunt just, that was her way of dealing with my outburst. She thought I would have temper tantrums, but they weren't really temper tantrums. They were, I was having emotional breakdowns. No, I didn't have the skills to cope with a lot of it. I had just moved into this house that I knew nothing about. I moving to a state I knew nothing about. I was taken out of counseling. I was, you know, moved from this home that I had been with for three and a half years where I was finally safe. And so all of a sudden I'm moving to this foreign land, so to speak, where I didn't know, I didn't know anybody. Um, I only knew my aunt, I only knew, you know, my uncle who had helped us move, and my sister, and I didn't have anything comforting, I didn't have anything there that was familiar to me, so of course I was traumatized, so of course I was freaking out, so of course I was having meltdowns, because where's my dad, like, why can't I see my father, like, where is he, you know, why did you take me all the way over here, away from him, her way of dealing with those she thought were oh Heather's having a spiritual issue it's a spiritual problem she this needs to be dealt with so we need to call the pastor and of course I'm going to spare everyone details but um, my aunt has been confronted on the issue and it's not good um, but it it didn't go well um, and sadly it happened until I was 19 um, where it ended but then 21 years when I was 21, she went on a rampage of just thinking I sinned, thinking I had committed this horrible sin of abominations and adultery. And I, not to make light of anyone's beliefs or not to poke fun or anything, but I'm sorry, but I don't even know what that is. Like, I don't even know what the word means. I don't, I'm, none less understand what's an abomination. 21 with a brain injury, with a learning challenge, with a learning disability. What? What's that? I don't know what that word means. I don't know what fornication means. I don't know what abomination is. So I'm being accused of all these things that I'm supposed to be doing 
but what am I doing? So she ended up leaving me homeless in a home in a uh, in a hotel for three nights in Boston, Massachusetts, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, actually. And was like, you're not coming back to my house until you've gone on your knees and repented. Just adamant about I needed to repent and change my ways because supposedly I was doing abominations and witchcraft. I just calmed down and pretended. <laughs> to have my act together just to get home. So I'm like, I want out, like, just get me out of here. And then there was, I could get home. She didn't want any of my stuff in the house. She didn't want, really, she didn't even want me in the house, but she didn't want to leave me alone in the house. And there was a night where I was in the kitchen and I was actually talking to my birth mom at the time, telling her what was going on. Like, you know, hey, like my aunt just took me out of school. Like, I don't know why. Like, she's saying I'm doing these things against the cult. Like, I'm not following their beliefs or their rules and law. So I, long and short of it, I became suicidal. According to research at a study at the University of South Wales, suicide attempts are three times more likely by people who have experienced child sexual abuse and two and a half times more likely by people who experienced physical abuse as a child. I, I grabbed a butcher knife and held it to my throat, and that was the end of it. Um, and she ended up calling the cops because at one point I pointed the knife to at her. Uh, never, it never touched her. It just to scare her to be like, hey, like I'm trying to get your attention. I'm telling you, I'm being triggered. I'm being re-traumatized. I need you to freaking listen. Um, and that was just the point where I go up to my room and next thing you know, I hear pounding on the front door. She had called the cops, told the cops that I had brought the knife to my room, which was not true at all. Uh, next thing I know, they're barging into my room. They've got, an officer's got my hands behind my back, which for someone, that's traumatizing to assess a these child, especially when they don't know what's going on, like, when they're already traumatized. Um, and so I was trying to hide in my closet. I was trying to get in my closet and hide. I just, I just wanted to, to be done. Um, and so the officer, she was basically the gist of it was two ways. You can go willingly or we can force you to go. So, of course, I was like, please get me out of here. Like, I'll go. Um, and then from there, I was on 48 watch in a psych ward in a hospital, and I was fine after 24 hours, and the next day, I'm ready to be discharged, and the social worker comes in the room and he's like, you're ready to go, you need to call her, she hasn't come yet, you. And I said, okay, well, I can guarantee you, she won't. Lo and behold, my aunt was like, no, I told you you're done, you're not welcome back to my house, the Lord told me that you're not to come back to my house, and that... You, you're on your own. So basically, she's saying the Lord told her to leave me homeless, which... <laughs> going to go on a side note here. Please, somebody that reads their Bible, please tell me where it says it's okay to do that. Um, <laughs> uh, please tell me where it... Because read my Bible, and I'm pretty sure Jesus doesn't say that. Specifically. <laughs> um, I've never heard that verse. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I don't recall reading that verse specifically where it says parents leave your children homeless or you know okay um side note <laughs> but getting back to the to the story um in all seriousness so she came and picked me up because the social worker had some very colorful words to use to her say to her and basically was like you have to come get her the least you could do is take her 
to a friend or a homeless shelter. So she took me to a homeless shelter. That was my first time experiencing a homeless shelter in Manchester, Connecticut. Among former foster youth with known outcomes, 36% become homeless at some point. I was next to pedophiles, drug dealers, drug abusers. I mean, people I didn't know. And um, at that time, I was still in contact with my birth mom, and no one was helping me. So my birth mom agreed to come get me. So I was, just had met my birth mom for the first time when I was 21. It wasn't, it was, but it wasn't what I thought. Like, yes, she, we hugged each other, we embraced each other, but... I didn't get the answers that I was wanting, um, and I'm going to have to backtrack on that story because there's a piece of that that I didn't share, but she um, ended up smelling, when she came to get me, she smelled of alcohol. I, looking back at it now, I'm like, nope, that was the wrong move, I should not have gone with her, but I did. Um, but I, my emotions were everywhere, I wasn't thinking clearly, I've just been left homeless with $5 to my name, nowhere to go, so she was saying she was going to help. So I went with her. Um, and at first she smelled like alcohol and she gets to get back to me. And within a week of being with her, she assaulted me. And then from there, I was, I went into a psych ward for about a week. To backtrack, I first had contact with my birth mom at 16. So from the ages of 16 to 18, communication had been reopened to my birth mom, actually from my oldest, from my biological sister who was in foster care with me. She had opened that that communication. Sadly, it, it opened um, a can of worms for me. But at the same time, I needed to have questions answered. And so um, for my sister, it was more like, are you my birth mom? For me, it was, I need to, like, I want answers. And I had a list. I had a, I wrote down on a list of, of all, I wrote down on paper, you know, a list of questions. And why did this, why did you do this? Why did you do why did you do WXY? You know, and I know my aunt, like, she was really upset because I had done it for back. And I know that that was hurtful, but at the same time, it was like, listen, I'm not trying to hurt you. It's just, I deserve answers. I deserve an explanation. Maybe not so much an, apolo- an apology, but maybe some ownership. And that's really all I've been wanting is ownership and an apology. Um, and still, and that's kind of where I struggle right now. It's like, as much as I know, like, logically, I'll never get that. I'll never get it because she's still an alcoholic and she's still going to fight that to her death. But a little girl with me would like an apology or like an explanation. Um, and so I wrote her these letters. And basically the letters came back. She came back with responses of, oh, you must be remembering something that's in foster care. You were with me at the time. That never happened. Or trashing my father or trashing his side of the family and it's like or blaming DCF or blaming foster care and while she had valid points <laughs> yes part of it was foster care's issue part of it was DCF issues however why am I in foster care <laughs> I'm in foster care because of you like don't put it on my father don't put it on my grandparents that's not their fault. You know, you had choices. You made your choices. The same, you made your bed, you lay in. And that's what she's doing now. Um, and then four, I, we exchanged maybe four or five letters back and forth. And then on my 18th birthday, she sent me like a gift, so to speak, 
and that was it more or less of I miss you you're always going to be my baby girl and I remember this and that just wanting to focus on the now and the future but not wanting to take ownership or acknowledge or talk about what had happened or own any of it really I had a relationship with her from 2006 when everything happened at the hospital on and off until 2011 um and then that's when everything just stopped i my sister wrote her a letter and was like we're done you're not owning anything that you've done you know basically defending me my sister saying you know heather's the way she is because you gave her feet alcohol syndrome she's trying to express to you how she's feeling and it's gotten to the point where now you you pushed one too many buttons and so yes now she's freaking out and now she's having a temper tantrum so to speak really it's a it's a she's having a mental breakdown um and so that's her way of responding and she doesn't know any other she doesn't know any better so we're not talking to you we don't want to hear from you until you you own up to your mistake so i haven't heard from her i the last time i heard from her was two years ago when my birth dad died he passed away two years ago and the day after he died she somehow found out which I'm not surprised she would. It's the town that she's in. Is, Maine is a small state. So the town that I was born in, the town that she lives in, it's very small. People find out. And there's only one family of the last name in the whole state of Maine. So anybody knows <laughs> our family. Um, and she sent me a, a, a message just basically saying, I'm sorry to hear about your father. And she's like, I know you don't want much to do with me, but if you ever need to talk, I'm always here for you. And I'm just kind of like, huh like you just you use where was this you know 30 years ago where was this 21 years ago you know like where was this caring then where was this wanting to be in my life then like so I never responded but um I don't talk to her now um so that's the gist of my story I know I kind of jumped around but I try to stay on track for the most part um but that's that's my story (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the story. <laughs> what a ride, my dear! What a ride! Wow, yep. there, there's a lot there. Um, wow, I'm just I'm trying to decide you know, where to start. You know, what do I say? And how how early do you remember? You know, how I'm sorry, how young do you re- remember of your uh, your experience? I mean, obviously, you probably don't remember no, going into no. foster care. I started um, remembering things when I was two years old, believe it or not. And I know that that's controversy because a lot of people will say, well, you're two, your brain isn't developed. But you can remember things. You, there are certain things you do remember. Um, so I, I started remembering some things, uh, remembering at the age of two and then at the age of three. Um, that's kind of when, like, everything just full-fledged went into action and it all went down what kind of memories did you have at at two um mostly like my birth mom drinking um going back and forth to mom's house or um dad picking me up spending a a more time with my grandparents on his side than my dad or than my birth mom um why more kind of like where's my mother like why can't I be around her kind of like mainly memories of being with my dad's side of the family and like why 
Like, not that that was a bad thing for me. I'm not complaining about that. But just the curiosity, like, what's going on? Confusing, really. Well, you mentioned your dad. Um, why why was your dad not able to uh, to take care of you? Um, so he, uh, I might get emotional, so I apologize. Um, Emotion he, is fine. <laughs> um, so they they did tell him uh, the DCF workers did say, you know, you have the opportunity here to step up and be a dad and and do this. However. These are the rules. These are what we're, these are the expectations. And as you know, DCF has a whole list of expectations. Um, oh, yeah. And you have to jump through hoops. Um, and those hoops were, he had to find a three bedroom apartment and he had to have a job that was going to provide. Um, he was born with a disability and I, I don't recall the name of the disability or what he has, but it was hard for him to find work. He had to get a three bedroom apartment because they wouldn't let me and my sister share a room. We had to have separate rooms. If you're going to be living, you know, if you're going to be having your daughters need their own room. I guess they were concerned of any sexual abuse that could happen, which he never did. He was never, he was never physically violent with me. He was never sexually abusive to me. He was just not present. He would be physically in a room, but just not there when I was older. So um, he had the opportunity and he tried. He did try several times, you know, hey, like, and I know, like, my grandmother tried to help him too, like, hey, like, we'll, we'll look for, let's look for an apartment, let's find you something. In the end, it didn't end up working for him. Like, he couldn't, he just couldn't do it. It was, he gave it, he gave up. And that's where my anger part comes in, because it's like, okay, I wish back in the 80s, I know there probably wasn't a lot of resources and it's like I wish maybe if he I keep thinking like maybe if he had had more resources more help uh more help from the state instead of just throwing this all at and be like you like this is your responsibility and yeah it was they should have helped him out a little bit more um and I think he was feeling stressed about it and just realized like I can't do this like on my own as a single dad it's hard so yeah even though he tried I wish he had had tried harder because even after I was adopted and even after I was living with my aunt, there were opportunities where he could have stepped up in other ways. It's interesting because he, he never really talked. It's always us reaching out to him and, or it was my aunt telling him like, okay, well, it's Heather's high school graduation. It would mean a lot for her to be there. You should be there. So he came, but he only do things if he was told or suggested that he show up. So he didn't really want much to do with me, um, as sad as that is. And it was because I reminded him too much of foster care. That pain was too much for him. And while I have, while I had compassion and understanding for that, it, it destroyed me in the end because all I wanted was to have a relationship. He never really had that connection of talking. He was just very quiet. Like he would, Yes, I saw him every Christmas. That was amazing. Like, my aunt would drive us back to Maine every Christmas. So I got to see him Christmas every year. And that's well and great, but there was still that connection missing. Like, we would sit in the living room, and all he would do is watch TV. Like, well, that's great, Dad. I can watch TV anytime, but I'm here visiting you. Like, let's talk. Like, let's go do something. Let's be 
let's have some time together. Like, don't just sit there and read a newspaper. So there was just, and I think that's that his way of coping with it. Uh, but then when everything went down with my aunt, like, I feel like that's when I wish he would have stepped up. Um, cause that was, that was a beautiful opportunity. That would have been a beautiful opportunity. It was a beautiful opportunity for him to step up and do something, whether it was, you can stay here with me until you can get a job or let me give you some money. So you have, you know, something to eat, anything. It would have been, a, the gesture would have made a lot of, it would have done a lot. Um, and though he defended me and though he said, you know, what she did wasn't right, he never actually defended me to her. He never actually said to her, what you're doing is not okay. I'm not okay with what you did to my daughter. Like, so that was the hurtful part of it. But in the end, he, he chose his other family. He chose my house sister. He chose my stepmom. Um, I flew out twice to see him before he died. And my stepmom really wouldn't let me be alone in the room with him, which was very frustrating um, because my whole intent of going to make my peace with my father was I just wanted him to know that I didn't hate him, that I, I went through a stage where I hated him when I was angry with him, but I wanted him to know like in that moment, like, I don't hate you. Like we were put in this horrible situation crappy situation and it wasn't your fault it wasn't our fault you know it's her fault it's our mother's fault and it sucked but it, I'm not angry at you and I know you tried I just miss you like I just wanted him to know that you know um but I never actually really got to say that because I never actually got to be alone with him um but the last trip I made up was he was going to my grandparents' house on his side of the family, which is where he was living. I just walked in. I was like, okay, I'm at Grammy's house now, but it wasn't didn't feel like my grandmother's because my stepmom just made it into her own and it didn't feel welcoming and I just wanted to see my dad and you know, we talked and I asked him how he was feeling and just I felt helpless because I wanted to take care of him the way he tried to take care of me, but I didn't know how because he sick with cancer. And um Sorry, <laughs> did not get emotional. So the last, my last time with him, um, so he, he, the social worker was there and she was talking to me and of course I'm just looking at her like, yeah, I know who you are. I'm not stupid. Like you don't gotta explain it. Like, <laughs> um, but she was just doing her job and so. He eventually got tired and wanted to go lay down. And so I got up to give him a hug and he, he literally held me for a good five minutes. And that was the last, that was it. That was, there were no words exchanged. And I don't know if that's how it was supposed to be. I'll never know. Um, but in that moment, it was like, I finally felt safe again. Um, and so that he ended up passing away two days later which I didn't go. I didn't go to a service because A, I couldn't afford another $800 to fly out. <laughs> um, and they didn't really do much. Yeah, it's expensive. And so I, I really didn't have much. And I, I also had made the personal choice of, I just don't want to be around 
family who don't want me. So that was the, that was that. <laughs> um, sorry. <laughs> You're totally fine. I, I lost my own father about, uh, what it's been six years, five and a half years ago now. Yeah. yeah going on six and, uh, lost him to cancer. I understand the struggle. It's, it's not an easy topic to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that your father's disabilities were just too overwhelming for him? Yeah, and I think that that was part of the issue. And back then, they didn't have they didn't probably have a lot of the resources that that they do now for people with disabilities. You know, like I know here in Tennessee, they they advocate very strongly for disabled children, disabled adults, and there's great programs. Same with the state of Connecticut. I know there's a lot of great programs and a lot of great resources and and help for disabled adults disabled children so back then back in the 80s i don't know what his options were and that that may have been a part of the major issue yes i i think that that was a part of the problem well i'm not quite old enough to give you too much definition of what the 80s were in that world because <laughs> i was a, i was a youth myself during that time frame you know <laughs> but, uh, but yeah as I remember it, the uh, the 1980s were a different world for sure. Yeah, we did not have the things available that there is now to us. Mm-hmm. So that, I'm certain that was a hard struggle for him. As a dad, I can't imagine being put in that position either. Yeah, you talked about what I believe you said ten different foster homes, roughly. Yes, and nine of them were abusive. Correct. Now, as a foster family, we've had roughly 20 kids come to our house. I can I I can genuinely see a kid looking at you know a couple specific kids seeing something as maybe being abusive where it really was just a matter of look I said this is the rules here if you do this you don't get that it's going to always be if you know these are the boundaries these are clear cut boundaries but for kids who've never had clear cut boundaries I can see them really seeing that in a different light kids who've had specific traumas thinking that something was was leading up to something. It, it took me a while to really learn to look at the kids that are in our home sometimes and understand that when I see a kid who's struggling around food, mm-hmm. that there's oftentimes a, um, a problem with a, a food thing for them. You know, they, they were perhaps not fed on a regular basis. And so they're constantly trying to get food. We've, we've experienced that recently with, with a young kid who's always wanting extra, always wanting seconds, always wanting thirds, always wanting fours. You go, whoa, hang on. I'm not trying to give you diabetes at three, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So for them, their perception could really look that way. I can totally understand that. But it sounds to me like, you know, that's not what you experienced at all. No, not at all. When I hear people talk about problems in the foster care system, I'd like to think that, you know, that's, you know, that, that we're looking at more of the perception issues from a kid rather than these horrible stories. But, but I've heard the horrible stories. It sounds like you've lived some of those stories. How do you think living through that as a young child has affected who you've become as a woman today? Um, it's left me not trustworthy, uh, but I don't trust people. I don't, I, I second, I have an issue with trust. Like I, I, I'm working on it. I, trying to work through some of those issues, you know, but when I hear foster stories, I'm just like, 
well, that's great. Like my attitude, well, that's great. Yeah, that didn't happen to me. The very negative side of it. And it's like, if you only knew, like, it just angers me because it's like, I want to believe that there's good people out there, but that's not my case. That's not my, that's not my story. That's not what happened, you know? So it's just very hard to trust people, trust, just trust in general. How has that affected your relationships as you've, as you've grown and gotten older? Um, it's been difficult. I don't, again, it's been hard because it's like, I want to trust this person, but I don't know your intent. For example, I'll use my own sister, my biological sister, because we we don't really talk. um, And there's been a lot of conflict in history with us. Um, I don't, I don't trust her. Um, And that's because of things that she's done. She's betrayed my trust where she's, she's given information to a foster family that we have, contact with still and it's like but they've made a choice to betray me um and to disown me and shun me and because i don't follow their beliefs and they you know she's still choosing to talk to them and it's like no i don't want you mentioning my name i don't want you telling my my info to them because they can know how to reach out to me you know so it's the little things that she does and the little things that people do, you know, don't betray my trust because then I'm going to expect to question who you are. And it's like, I don't like being lied to. So if I feel like you're being, if I feel like I'm being lied to, that's an automatic, I don't trust you. And I put them out of my circle. I have my inner circle and I have my outer circle and I keep them way across the hall, like across, across, because I just don't trust them. And I'm like, until I can trust you, I don't have anything to say so it's hard well i mean with everything that you've been through and you know everything growing up i would imagine it's extremely hard to trust somebody you know i would say that it'd be really hard to let somebody into that circle Mm -hmm. because i mean i've i've been there i i should have been in care and wasn't i had a pretty um crappy upbringing um and i i know from personal experience how hard it is to let somebody in I, I can imagine that, that there is a significant amount of trust loss, especially when it comes to men. Mm-hmm. Has that affected your, your romantic relationships as you've gotten older? Yes. Um, it, it's actually interesting because it, it's mainly women that I have a hard time trusting. Um, it's men too, but it's actually mostly women. Um, with men, it's more of, I always just pick the wrong, really. It's always a bad relationship scenario it's just i'm always picking the wrong kind of a person um where i'm like okay what's your what's your ulterior motive what do you want like kind of that's my attitude um but with women it's more or less like i'm always wanting to find that mother figure or i've always wanted to have that mother figure in my life and so i i go after somebody who i thought would be the perfect mother or would be the perfect mother and they end up being not and I find out that there's somebody else or that there's they're living this kind of a lifestyle so I'm always I just want family so I tend to go after not good living situations so to speak um and uh I'll give kind of a I didn't share this part of my story but I'll I'll go into a little detail on 
there was a time back in 2012 where I was being harassed and stalked by a pedophile and I felt the only way to get the only way to be safe was to move out of the state of Maine so I moved down to Florida I met this woman on uh, Facebook um, and she I met her in a domestic violence support group and she claims or she still claims um, that she's running a underground domestic violence rescue business rescue business uh too good to be true right well sure enough i get down there and i'm leaving out some details just for the sake of time but she was supposed to come get me that didn't happen she supposedly broke down in maryland yada 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 i ended up taking a greyhound bus all the way from maine to florida (laughs) which was that yeah that was like my first i mean i've done like a two-hour ride to boston like you know but i've by myself from Maine to Florida, uh, which was an interesting experience. Um, Probably nerve-wracking. <laughs> nerve-wracking and fun at the same time. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so I get down there not knowing if this woman's going to show up or not. With my, I have my stuff. Sure enough, she shows up. And I'm not going to mention her name. Um, <laughs> although she should be on America's Most Wanted, but she's not. Uh, but anyway, I'm not going to mention her name. Um, because she also has seven children and I, just in case if any, any of them are listening, I don't want to name names. Um, and for my safety. So sure enough, we get there. She's in this beautiful house, rental house, and she's got, at the time, she had five kids and we're there and it was the honeymoon stage and everything was great. She was helping me out. Yada, yada, yada. I had transferred my section eight down to Florida. Well, sure enough, a month later, everything goes haywire in a handbasket and she starts throwing my phone in the lake she starts blocking me from wi-fi she gets physically abusive and she gets um you know taking my food stamps and just we ended up she ended up getting losing the house because it was on foreclosure so we ended up homeless and she ended up you had to stay in hotels and sure enough she started hanging out with prostitutes and we're like i'm like what are you doing of course not knowing even know what that was didn't even know i'm like what what's going on so of course i'm just asking questions because i'm curious i'm like 25 26 at the time like what like not even having a clue i don't even know what that is and sure enough only to find out she was hanging out with her because that's what eventually she started doing so long story made short i end up moving out of this woman's house at least three times and moved back in with her four times um and the fourth time she left me homeless because i would not prosecute um and oh well i'm not gonna you know <laughs> it could have i realized that could have gone ended way 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 worse and it could have been more dangerous than it was but um it it was dangerous but her leaving me homeless was a blessing in disguise um just because that was my way out um but the woman is still running her business <laughs> um out in arizona now <laughs> so yeah so just i and the reason why i shared that story was because i know the questions are going to be some are asking probably well why did you move back in with her four times like come on heather get it together I moved because I wanted a family. I wanted a family so bad. Like, 
I wanted that mother figure so bad. And that was what I wanted. Was it wrong for me to keep moving in and out? Yes. I, I realize that now. What, like, that was the wrong choice. That was the wrong decision. I made that wrong move. I should have done my research a little better. And am I saying everybody you meet on Facebook is a criminal? No. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying that they're bad. But what I'm saying is I should have done more research. I should have done my research more carefully. Um, I should have been a little more precautious. I should have done a little more research on her business, you know, made sure it was legit. I should have done my homework, so to speak. And I should have just, um, I should have just quit when I not had gone back, but I, I went back and I ended up being left homeless. And from there, I ended up getting help from another church. Um, and then from there, I'm, I'm fine now, but that's, that's my, when I say women are my weakness is because I, I go after that mother figure that I, I so desperately have wanted and needed, um, which I have that mother figure now, but then I was looking in all the wrong places and I was going after the wrong, the people that had the wrong intent, the bad intent, you know? Right. Because you were seeking that mom so bad yeah. and wanting that relationship and connection Mm-hmm. was how hard was it to to stand up for yourself and say no I'm not going to do this I'm I'm not going to be a prostitute I mean that must have taken a lot to stand up for yourself yeah like that was a given like I was like uh no are you kidding me like I'll go sleep in a church parking lot before I do that like no that's just not so saying no to her with that that wasn't the issue like that's not um I was like uh heck no goodbye like we're we're done and I had confronted her on it too and she's like that's not true I just asked if she had a had a compassionate heart and understand that I'm a single mom and I gotta do what I gotta do and I'm like okay we're done like I that you don't ask and she knew my trauma she knew my history and she knew everything that I've been through like you don't ask somebody who's been in foster care to do that you don't put somebody in that kind of a situation so saying no to her was was pretty, I was like, that's it. That was my point. You know, you, you mentioned earlier that you were 25 or 26 years old and, you know, didn't even really know what prostitution was at that point. And where a lot of people will hear that and think that doesn't make sense by that age, most people at least heard the word and know what it means. Um, I, I was raised in a, a completely different cult. Um, my, my family gets upset when I call it a cult because, well, because they're, they do. <laughs> they're still part of that. But um, th- there was no sexual abuse in what I grew up in. It was a very fundamentalist Christian cult. But when you grow up in that world, you're very, y- your mind is shaped in a very specific way. And certain things are just not talked about. Certain things are just not, not explained. And I can totally understand why at that age, that would be something that you wouldn't have had any exposure at all to. Right. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, one of the things you talked about a lot through your story there is that is how DCF was almost complicit in, in your abuse. Mm-hmm. Why do you think they had such a hard time believing a kid who was telling stories about things that were, that were obviously not stories that kids should be able to make up if they hadn't seen some horrible things? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I, I could, I, I don't, I honestly don't know. I just know that, DCF was called. There was a call that was made. I know my sister had called the police, but the police didn't buy it. The police didn't believe it. I don't know why. I don't, 
still to this day, I, I probably will never know, but it, it now it outrages me because that's ridiculous. Like a DCF worker gets a call and a child's been hurt the way that, that I was like, that is a red flag. There should be a red flag to a DCF worker. Like, boom, we got to go get her out. Like, don't make them stay in a home for three more months. Like, and have to endure that abuse. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm speculating, but I'm wondering if the elderly parents told, or the elderly father was like, no, my son wouldn't do that. Like, convinced him or convinced them, like, yeah, we're fine. But then three months later, they call and they're like, hey, you know, my wife is dying. Like, they can't live here anymore. And so finally, we, we were removed. But no, I, I think eventually he was arrested. He, they, that calls were made and he was arrested. I, I don't know. I don't know. Cause I'm sure these people are no longer alive. Um, <laughs> which is for my, for my safety is probably a good thing. Um, so I don't know, but I, it, it outrages me when I hear stories of, of, of DCF workers who, who get calls and do nothing. There was actually just this year in the state of Maine, my home, my home state, um, in February, there were two children, um, and this is all accurate. Actually, anybody can Google this, look it up. Um, it's all over the newspaper. It's all over the internet. Um, two children, a girl and a boy, 10 years old and nine years old or 10 and eight, I think. Um, their mother beat them to death and they were in state custody. Um, but then somehow the parents got them back temporarily and it was in that time frame that the that the mother had beaten them to death between 40 to 45 calls were made to dcf and they did nothing about it 40 and this is true 40 40 to 45 calls were made and to dcf and dcf just sat there and did nothing so that's where my rage comes in because it's like are you kidding me like right that's horrendous yeah one call i, I get it 45 calls and no one in that office could be like hey there's something going on like let's go check this out like and obviously they're in prison now the parents like but and i believe the dcf workers are being investigated but come on like i I could go on a rant right now but like (laughs) i like and how many homes were you placed in i was placed in 10 10 and you said only one out of the 10 was a decent home yep mm-hmm. yeah that that's that's terrible yep the numbers should not be that way nope and you know I, i'm so sorry for any child that had to endure that yep how did you endure that how did you keep going as a child i mean what made you just keep getting up every day uh my sister and my dad i like my sister was my main protector um when we became probably three and she was five, like we started looking out for each other, taking care of each other. I mean, there was one incident where um, we had just been brought to a home and um, the ZCF worker, I believe, you know, informed them that I was special needs, um, which I don't like using that word because I don't see myself that way, but through their eyes, I was special needs. And, um, they couldn't handle it. And so by the end of the day, that night, they called and DCF was back at the door. And I remember asking 
I remember asking the boss about like, why can't I stay? Like, why can't, why can't I stay? And she just said, because you're, you're different. You're, you're basically retarded. Like you've, you've special needs. I can't handle you. And I remember just the DCF worker, like she thought it was the funniest thing. Like she thought it was funny. I don't know why that just creeps me out, but, um, I had nowhere to go and I ended up sleeping on a bench and there were, it was snowing and I was five years old, like sleeping on a bench, like what DCF workers does that makes a child sleep outside. Um, so oh, I am so sorry. <laughs> I, I have no other words to say other than, you know, I, yeah, nobody should be treated that way. No child should be treated that way. I'm and so sorry like, that you were. Yeah. Thankfully my sister did something about it and was like, listen, like, you can't just leave her outside. Like, <laughs> you know, she's Is your sister three. older than you or? Yeah, she's a year and a half older than me. Okay. So she's about five or six. So she was able to articulate, like, you're leaving her outside. Like, she's going to freeze. Like, she needs a blanket. You know, she's able to communicate something. Um, and then sure enough, like, they, they took me somewhere and I don't know where it was, but yeah, it's DCM. Did, didn't really do a lot of caring <laughs> per se. Um, they, they did more, they, they really should have done the research on my aunt. That's where they really should have stuck the nail in the coffin. They really should have, you know, investigated her more. Not to say that she was a criminal or she had a, a bad history or anything like that, but they really should have made her do trauma classes. They really should have made her. You know, I'm sorry, but anybody who lets a child be sexually abused, I'm sorry, they're a criminal in my eyes. Yeah. You know, Heather, um, I said something at the beginning of this conversation that I really want to stick to, and that is that I really, really, you know, am, am moved by the, the depth of your story, and I know our listeners will be as well. Our main goal is not just to traffic in someone else's trauma. What I'd like to hear is how you managed to walk through this trauma, through this pain. Like, this is a big load of pain. That's a big load of trauma that most people would not be able to walk through and lead a normal life into their future. What has brought you to the place you're at today? Where where's the strength come from? You know, what, what steps have you taken to, to get yourself through that hard place? Because as I look through the social media, as I, as I read things on Reddit, and I look through the Facebook posts and the, the different pages i see people who are adults and struggling hard still mm-hmm. what what can you tell them that you used to help bring yourself through that hmm. that's, that's that's a good um good question good statement um so for the first and foremost um having an outlet having a positive outlet um and i know it may be small and trivial, but having an outlet. So when I was going through that abuse with my aunt, being 13 and 14 and 18 and 19, and having between being those, not having anybody to talk to, not having a friend, not being able to talk to anybody on the outside, so to speak, um, I had a positive outlet. So she really encouraged me with art and creativity. And so I had taken art classes in high school and um, I really enjoyed it, and um, so that was my knickknack, you know, um, doing that, scrapbooking, journaling, and so and music. So those were my outlets growing up. With where's Heather? She's either in her room or downstairs in the basement, painting, like not doing her homework, like <laughs> hiding out, you know. Um, 
<laughs> or she's, <laughs> she's down in the filming room we were working on a scrapbook um you know i even scrapbooked in university of connecticut was my favorite basketball team i did scrapbooks of that you know just having that positive outlet so i'd be doing watercolor just the water and it doesn't have to be like expensive watercolor like it, it only was for me because i i bought them i owned them i paid for them you know i you know it could be drugstore watercolor set you know it doesn't have to be it could be crayons for all i care I, it doesn't matter like I, it was a form of art um and so that's how i got through it i remember just being in my room and just grabbing colored pencils or whatever I could grab, you know, coloring, letting it out, um, music. I have tons of music, so we weren't really allowed to listen to a lot of Christian music, so to speak, um, <laughs> growing up, even though you would think we were in a Christian church. Um, but there is one specific uh, woman who I listen to. Her name is Darlene Zeck. Uh, she is the pastor. She's the lead worship leader for Hillsong out in um, Australia. I love her music. Um, and so it was actually her music that got me through, um, that pulled me through a lot of um, the trauma. And it wasn't so much, yes, her voice was very calm and soothing, but it was the words, it was the, just the, the passion in the music that a lot of the words that she wrote was very touching to my heart. So that got me through. And then obviously having that positive outlet of, you know, scrapbooking and painting and drawing and journaling. Um, and so that, that, I'm going to preach for that, with that one for a second, because that, I feel like that is so important. I feel like right now there's so many young children, teens, young adults who, who have outlets, but they're not positive. They're not healthy. They're out doing drugs or they're out doing drinking or, you know, they're not, there's no positive outlet. So it's really crucial to get that to get that um, positive outlet. Even in my 20s, like it was going to the YMCA and playing basketball for an hour. It was swimming. It was just looking at the resources I had in my own town. Um, and so that, if anyone's listening, like if you're in that situation, you're in the situation I was in, go, you know, a lot of the high schools in the town, in your hometown, will offer summer programs, will offer um, winter programs such as watercolor classes or um, poetry classes or drawing classes or even just checking out the YMCA. Your local YMCA has a lot to offer for children, for adults, for teenagers, for youth, uh, whether it's swimming, whether it's sports, whether it's summer camp. They offer summer camp. So just that was another thing. Summer camp was my outlet because another big outlet because I got to go out. I was out. I was making friends. I was talking to people outside of my situation. Um, so again, I can't, I can't stress it enough. Having a positive outlet is really is how I'm getting through it. Having a positive outlet, having coping skills. Like I had coping skills up the wazoo um, for a while. And then they got put on the back burner because the therapist that I had for nine years had passed away from breast cancer and actually I met her in the psych ward at a hospital um, and she was my, uh, in fact I remember her saying very clearly to me, I was sitting in her office and crying my eyes out telling her the situation and, and feeling sorry for myself to be honest and rightfully so and an hour goes by and she's like, nope, 
I'm all done listening to this. I, you're not going to sit in my office anymore and be a victim. You're, we're going to come up with a plan to get you out, to get you on your feet. I don't play the pity party. I don't play pity party games. We're all done with that. And that has stuck with me because it's like, oh, wait. Hey, had to snap out of it. Like, there's more. Not saying that my situation is less than, but there's other people in worse situations, and I have a choice. So she basically was saying, you have a choice. You can sit here and feel sorry for yourself and woe is me, or you can actually get up and do something. And so that's really been my fight this whole time is just, yeah, it sucks. I was dealt crappy cards from the time I was born until now. I've been dealt crappy cards. It sucks. Not gonna lie. <laughs> um, it sucks that I wake up with body aches every day. It sucks that I wake up with an anxiety attack. And it sucks that I, I can't, that my birth family doesn't talk to me. And, it, and it's horrible. And all these things have, but I'm choosing to do something. I'm choosing to live on my own. I'm supposed to be in a group home. And I'm renting a room about to be on my own, living in an apartment. Like, that doesn't happen to foster for a disabled person. Um, and so I'm putting myself around better people. Um, so I don't, I, I'm very careful. I do my homework. <laughs> I'm a good girl. I do my homework. I research who I'm around, who I, who I, who I chat with, who I talk with. Um, because social media can, social media is either your friend or your enemy. Um, and there, there are just as there's good people, there's also bad people. And so, in 2015, I met my now adopted parents who are my pastors. Um, they're my spiritual parents. They go by spiritual parents. Um, and I met them on Facebook. And um, he's actually the husband of a retired MMA fighter, um, and she's a pastor. <laughs> and, so they have their own workout ministry. They do their own church. And I've been with them for six years now. Um, and she is just everything I've wanted in a mom. Like, completely have wanted in a mom. She's opposite of my birth mom. She's compassionate. She's selfless. She's never harmed me. Never physically put a hand on me. She's never um, very respectful. She's very respectful. Um, she doesn't allow alcohol in her home, not because of the religious reasons, but because of me. She's very adamant about that. Like, you know, like our daughter, Heather, like she, she was in foster care and she was born with this. So we don't want to um, have alcohol in the home because that would be a stumbling block for her. And I agree with that. You shouldn't. If someone has a struggle with alcohol, you shouldn't be bringing it around somebody. Whether it's because they, they were born with a, a brain injury because of it or whether it was an addiction. So they're very... Uh, just the sweetest, I could call her right now and say, hey, like, something's going on. I'm not in a safe situation. She would come get Um So, and she's, she's amazing. Like, we, we spend Mother's Day together. We birthdays together. I mean, she's always calling to check on me. Um, very, and she's very, not only is she my pastor. <laughs> um, so, and it, it's hard because I've had to separate, like, when she's being mom and when she's being pastor. Um, <laughs> and I, I got, I actually got to live with them for six months and that was, that was very eye-opening. Um, but <laughs> she just, they have a different way of doing things, but she, she was never abusive. She was very, uh, if I didn't do something right, she, she'll come to me one-on-one -on -one and she'd be like, okay, like I could tell if she was upset 
but she calmly and patiently said, that's not what I asked you to do. You know, this is what I, so it, it's been hard to be like, okay, and then, now she's past it, so I have to like separate when she's asking me to do something on a, on a business aspect and where she's asking because she's asking a pastor, not as my mother. So <laughs> it's hard to separate it sometimes, but, um, so they're a positive outlet, um, in my life daily. Like I, in fact, she has a book out that is 30 day devotional. Um, so I've been reading that. That's been helpful. Um, and then my newest, my newest, um, thing that's really helping me right now is I have a life coach, um, who is amazing. I met her through Facebook as well. It's actually interesting because I met her after I moved out of California a few years ago. Um, when my birth dad passed away, I was looking for a therapist and I knew I was going to need somebody and I couldn't find the right person. And lo and behold, I moved to Tennessee and this woman pulled up on my Facebook wall and showing like her ad and all her paintings and this and that. I'm like, what heck? Like, I know I didn't look this well. I don't even know who this is. So I checked her out, lo and behold, and I, I kind of take things in three. So if, if something shows up on my wall three times, I, I kind of take a more heavier interest in it. Like, okay, God, what are you trying to tell me? Like, maybe she could help me. And so I, sure enough, I did my research. I stalked her Instagram. I stalked her Facebook. I read, I listened to her videos. I was like, she's really good maybe this is something I do need like I she does um intuitive painting and I've never I've never even heard of that I'm like I do painting but not like that like I, I don't even know what the word means so intuitive painting is basically I'm painting with what my intuition is wanting me to say like wanting me we all have that voice of what's right what's wrong oh uh, maybe I shouldn't go to the gas station at 10 o'clock at night you know that little voice and so teaching yourself how to paint with that voice you know I don't I, I, I could probably show you a whole bunch of paintings I did but my intuition told me to paint use black glitter I hate black glitter I, why I don't know like paint with this color or paint with orange I never use orange in my paintings like okay <laughs> like so and it, um, I meet with her weekly uh, every Thursday night actually um, and we have you know, a drop-in where she's like, how, and she asks, how can I support you? Which I love that question. I like how she asks that. Not what can I do for you, but how can I support you? So basically saying, what's going on in your week? How can I help you? Whether it's, sometimes we do a meditation. Sometimes it's, she's like, I don't want you sitting in a meditation. Like, let's work through your grief. Let's work through your pain. Let's go paint this out. Let's get this out until you're better. Um, reestablishing coping skills that I had had for many years and I had just because of all the trauma and pain of other events I had put them on the back burner so let's re-get those out let's reuse them um, taking care of yourself self-care self-care doesn't have to be going on a walk self-care could be taking a bath <laughs> self-care could be lighting a candle self-care can be you know curling up with blankets and a stuffed animal if that works for you and if that's how you feel safe then so be it so it's just and then we do journal talks so she has we do journaling assignments um and getting into that and then we do some painting and then we come back and she's like what's the takeaway you know so i have that support and so i'm slowly gradually getting gaining an inner circle of people that i can trust that i can like call when i'm in a panic um but the main thing she's training me and teaching me is 
take soothing myself first before I call somebody. Because ultimately, at when I'm at work, I can't call somebody. You know, I'm in a room full of kids. I can't go out into an office and grab my phone and call somebody. I have to be able to soothe myself. So whether that's rubbing my arm or rubbing my hand or, you know, I have to take care of myself. Well, that's really awesome. It sounds like you found yourself a really good support group. Yes, I, she's amazing. You surrounded yourself with some powerful women, mm-hmm. you know, and that's that's really great. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you, you've mentioned a few times, um, you know, that your special needs. Um, can you just tell our listeners what your diagnoses are? Uh, yeah, so my diagnosis, well, um, so my diagnosis, I have several. <laughs> um, so fetal alcohol syndrome is the first and foremost. Um, that's the number one um, diagnosis. Um, I was born addicted to alcohol. Um, the next diagnosis would actually be all mental mental health diagnosis. Um, so PTSD is obviously the other one. That's always something I've had. And then the other one, um, I was actually misdiagnosed um, with bipolar. They diagnosed me with bipolar because that's what my birth mom has. And not like, no, <laughs> I don't think I have it. Like, and the therapist at the time confirmed, like, no, you don't have that. Um, and so I went and we got diagnosed, and I have um, borderline personality disorder, which is um, an attachment and abandonment disorder. Um, and that actually makes more sense, believe it or not. I could see that. Um, which <laughs> I do have attachment issues, um, and I'm working on those, but that is the, the proper diagnosis name. Um, I was on medications. I was actually on medications for nine years. Um, they had me on nine anxiety and depression medications. I wow. actually, very, very scary. Um, I actually almost died. I collapsed down. I actually collapsed down my abuser's flight stairs in her house in Florida. Um, and that was it for me. I was like, I'm done. Like, I want all of these medications. Like, <laughs> I cut cold turkey, no joke. Like, literally cut cold turkey. Very thankful and blessed that I didn't have severe um, reaction to them. I felt like maybe sick to my stomach, but that was it. Like, I didn't have like a, I didn't have like a. Some of those medications can be really dangerous just to yeah, stop. Yeah, I I was on I was on um, Zoloft. That was actually my first one. I was on Wellbutrin. I was on. Bonapin. I was on, you name it, I was on it. Yeah, it was really bad. In fact, I gained a bunch of weight, like, in my stomach. I was a complete zombie. Couldn't even recognize me. Um, and I've been off medication since 2013. And I, and I want to actually, I'm going to share why I went off of that. Because I know people listening and be like, A, that probably wasn't smart. B, like, I'm sure people are wondering, well, how are you coping without medication? I, and I'm not saying medic I'm not saying go off your medication that's just that's not what I'm saying for me I'm saying I wanted off of them they were no longer helping when you get put on nine medications that's a red flag that was a red flag to me okay something's not working there's no need to be put be put on nine medications like that was a big no-no. I felt at the time, and it was weird because I have a mentor who's been my mentor for 15 years now. She actually was like, I told her she was crazy. I was like, Tina, you're crazy. Like, I need these. I was 
you I, I you couldn't tell me like I couldn't tell you like I wanted to be off of them but at the time I was like no one could tell me different that I didn't need to, like I need to be off these medications because I thought everyone was wrong uh sure enough she was right and she's not crazy I ended up getting off the medications um I went off of them because they weren't helping I felt like I wasn't really dealing with the core issue with the root issue and it was masking the pain because in my in my opinion in my belief medication masks the pain just like alcohol masks the pain it masks drugs it just it's masking the pain you're not getting to the root issue what's the root issue so yes it can be helpful and don't get me wrong like if you need to be on a med that is helping then so be it but if it's not helping and you're just masking the pain and not dealing with the root issue then it's time to read it's time to go talk to your psychiatrist again because it's just you know I, I had a friend of mine once who put it this way he said he was going through a hard patch and he needed medication to help him get over that hump and then he was able to get back into real life and deal with that so mm-hmm. so yeah it sounds like that was that was a real good thing for you to be able to to get off of that medication so i mean i God love you. I mean, you've been through through the ringer and back a couple times. It sounds like. Yep. <laughs> Hell yeah, back. But you know what, honey, you're still standing. Yeah, no. Yep. And that's what I want people to be able to, yeah. to look at, take away from this conversation. I mean, my gosh, I, I I know kids nowadays who have a hard time getting over a breakup with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and their world is falling apart. And yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know that that would even register on the scale you know, when you start looking at the things you've struggled your way through and came out victorious. And it, and it yeah, and I, I, I'm still standing because I chose, I chose to not be the victim anymore. I chose to say, okay, I'm not going to live that, I'm not going to live the life my, my birth mom made for me. I'm not gonna choose her path. I'm not gonna choose the path that others are choosing for me. I'm not gonna go down that abusive route. I'm not gonna drink alcohol. And a lot of children of alcoholics, they either go on the binge and they drink and they become alcoholics, or they go complete opposite. I'm complete opposite. Like, don't wanna be near it, don't wanna touch it. Like, I made the choice to to say, okay, I'm gonna live my life. Is it going to be great? No. Is it going to be trials? Yes. Is it going to be difficult? You better believe it. Like, it's a struggle. Some mornings, I just, I just rather crawl in bed and stay under the blanket and not even, and not even deal with it. Uh, not even deal with the fact that I'm waking up with body aches every morning. Like, the fact that I'm waking up at 3 in the morning with anxiety attacks every morning. Like, I would just rather fall off of work and not do, and, and not deal with it. But at the end of the day, I have bills to pay. I, nobody else is gonna do that. Nobody else is gonna do that. I walk an hour to work every day. Cause I don't drive, I don't have a car, I don't have a license. I either Uber or I walk to work. Not a lot of people would do that. I walk to work and I'll, I get people like, you walk, oh my God, just tell me, like I'll pick you up. And I said, that's not the point. The point is it's my responsibility to get myself to work. It's my responsibility to pay my bills, to pay, to do 
what the adult thing to do. It's not about accepting or receiving help. It's the fact that it's my responsibility. It's my duty to show up to work on time. It's my job to get to work. If I have a job, it's my responsibility to get to work. It's not anybody else's job. So I've made that, I'm harsh on myself sometimes because it's like, I'm choosing. Like, it's just a choice. It's a matter of choosing. Like, are you going to be a victim your whole life? Or are you going to get up and make something of yourself? Exactly. Well, that's the thing. You ha- you have a lot of strength, and it shows. You know, you're out there and you're killing it, and you're killing it every day. You know, and I, you know, props to you. Um, before we wrap it up here, um, you know, you're a very strong woman. What would you say to the other women out there, the women that have been through the abuse, the sexual abuse, the trauma? You know, what would you tell? those women what would you tell our women that are listening Uh, final thoughts (laughs) (laughs) uh one i'm very very sorry uh nobody should ever have to go through that whether you're a a woman or a man nobody should ever have to go through that um two if you're if you are struggling so let me address it this way so one if you're if you have gone out of that situation but you're struggling with getting support, getting counseling, getting help, please reach out. Whether it's maybe it's one of us on this podcast reaching out or somebody in a church. I, to me, reaching out to somebody in a church will help you. Um, find out what your community offers. Uh, maybe it's a support group. Reach out. There's also a sexual assault hotline number you can call. I don't have that on the list. Um, but you can always look it up. Um, if you have access to Wi-Fi and you're able to do or research it, you can grab you can grab a number you can call. Um, and two, if you're in the situation and you're trying to get out, please reach out for help. Like, go. Like, <laughs> call nine one one. Go get out. Uh, if you're scared, like, you, again, you can reach me. You can find me somewhere. Like, you can reach out to me via social media. You can reach out via podcast. So find a way to reach out because if you don't, no one's going to be able to help you. Um, and if you're looking to work through your pain but you don't have an outlet, again, a pen and paper start drawing start writing maybe it's music maybe it's poetry just whatever you gotta do to get through that pain and that trauma if you're enjoying it right now start writing start making poetry just just write just um, another thing for me is reading my bible again and I know that sounds shocking considering that I just said that I just got out of a cult like um but my my faith is still important like I still go to church on occasion I still have that in me um and so yeah on occasion I'll pick up my bible and I'll read it so if you're in it and you think the only way to get here is to read the bible then so be it um but you know churches there are a lot of other great churches that are helpful so if you're able to reach out to the church reach out um and Stay strong because you will get out of it. You will. Somebody will help you. Somebody will either somebody will make a call or somebody can help you get out of it. But um, but know that you're not alone. That's the most informal is you're not alone. You're not the only one. 
um, that is going through it or that has gone through it, um, you're not alone. Well, thank you so much for all your time tonight, Heather. We yeah. really enjoyed hearing your story. You know, it, it's very powerful. So thank you so much for sharing. You know, and, and you are correct. There is somebody out there. Reach out. We're here. You know, mm-hmm. you can always reach us. We're always willing to try to help where we can mm-hmm. and be a listening ear. Um, but with that being said, I think it's probably time to say goodnight. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> Yeah, I know you have to get up for, for a work tomorrow morning, and unfortunately, so do we. Um, yeah, also- nobody, nobody pays our bills either, unfortunately. <laughs> I wish. But I know you said you had a podcast and a blog, and so we'll make sure that we get that in the show notes. So there'll be some things there so people can come and find you and hear your story. Um, the, and uh, we'll make sure we get the name of the blog on there and the name of the podcast because, I mean, you have quite a story to tell. You have a lot of experience to share with people, and that's a valuable resource for anybody who needs that kind of that kind of support in a struggling time. So thank you so much for your time tonight. Yeah, thank you for your time as well. 